We're here today with uh, Chad Aboud, and uh, I've been looking forward to this podcast. Uh, I've known Chad now for what seems like forever, but it's it's funny how time flies and uh, how with some people you can actually get to know them in a short period of time. I feel like you've known them for decades. Yeah. And uh, Chad is one of those people, uh, partially because, Chad, you're so passionate uh, about everything you do, and uh, the, you, you get to the point. There's uh, You don't beat around the bush, <laughs> with uh, whether it's the advice, whether it is insights. And you've given a lot of thought to a lot of the insights uh, that you share, which is breaks through a lot of barriers in, in short order. So a lot for me to learn from you, but certainly uh, also for our audience more more broadly. I appreciate you, Gary. Thank you for having me. And, you know, you're one of those people that makes folks feel like, you know, they've known you forever. You're always like that, you know, and, and I think that's a really special characteristic, man. Like, I think, you know, I had a grandfather like that who just made people feel like they knew him you know, for decades. And so I'm very, I'm very like aware of it and you have that nature and it brings people to you. It's a really important thing, man. I appreciate you for that. Well, Chad, I feel like, you know, especially in the corporate circles, there's always all this protocol and so much sort of red tape to cut through. And I don't mean that in the strictly in the corporate sense, but rather in the even with people in relationships where they feel like they have to say certain things first, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I, I like to be a lot more genuine and candid about it. Be like, here's, you know, here's what I am about. Like, and also to build that trust to say, look, no matter what, I'm always going to be here. I'm always going to be part of the, so that you know that this relationship is here to stay not strictly a transactional piece. And uh, so whatever it takes to, to, to convey that to people is important to me. Uh, and, and that's, that's why we're here. And that's why uh, you and I uh, have uh, hit it off uh, so well and in short order. Yeah. Yeah. You back it up, man. That's the important part. So, Chad, tell us a bit about yourself. Um, the the just because certainly I've uh, gotten a chance to know you, but for and, and some of our audience will have known you in advance, but some won't. And uh, it, it's a great way to introduce yourself uh, a bit more broadly. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, I grew up in the Toronto area. Um, lived in the U.S. during my undergrad, but came back. Did like the JD MBA program up at Osgoode and Schulich, and so. For a lot of lawyers, I think, or, or folks that want to think that's going to be their career path, like me, I was watching a lot of Matlock as a kid, and I figured this was going to be my life. The way that you know Canada still does their legal system and legal training is that you have to do the articling program, that kind of training program before you can actually be a lawyer, whereas in the US, they don't have it. And so I say that because I think a lot of joint students who do a joint with a law program become lawyers, at least in the first phase of their career, as much because of that. Like, you know that you can't just graduate law school, you have to do articling. And and I think the way that the law firm recruit is set up and a lot of jobs are based in the big law firms, like it's just such a natural path to take. And I say all that because it's, it's a very natural pull and it makes a lot of sense for a lot of law students to go through it. But I also think that that path also reduces our reflection on what we want from our career. And I know Gary, you know, you made a really thoughtful decision very quickly in your career. Um, for me, in the first phase, I, I didn't. I said to myself, like, I wanted to be Matlock. I'm not sure law school feels like Matlock, but the MBA program felt a little bit more like that, working with people, a little bit more case study. So I did that and went into big law. And so for my first five years, I was at a national law firm helping public companies buy and sell each other, raise money. Um, and so that was kind of my first phase where I realized great training. And I worked with some incredible people that are so close friends today. But I did also realize quite quickly this was probably not going to be my medium to long-term future within the, even the first couple of those five years, I probably realized that. And Chad, that's, uh, I, I think that's an important realization uh, that it takes people a lot of time. Um, and sometimes because the right elements need to be there, whether at a personal level, at a career level to, to yes. make that decision. Um, uh, on certainly on my end, it was early exposure to the business and then saying, if I go too far the law route, then I'm really giving up this business. Probably have to do something else altogether. So uh, same balancing act, just uh, at a different stage. Yeah, I, th I think that's right. You saw, I mean, you were trying to build a business at the same time. So I think you had a different path that made it much more in your face about like, there's only one Gary. Gary's got a lot of energy, but only, you know, still limited at some perspective and like, where are you going to apply that energy? And for me, I actually did also try to start a business in law school, but I just didn't, I didn't have the energy behind it to keep going like you did. But what I found was my kind of in my face moment was 
I realized after about three or four of the five years that I cared deeply about doing two things. One was training students and junior lawyers, cared a lot about that. I enjoyed it personally. And I also said to myself, oh, we're in the human services business. So if you don't have humans that are engaged, excited to be here doing good work, then what's the business? And so I really cared about that. And then I also was really drawn to, because I was doing a lot of corporate finance at M&A and I was saying, there's a lot of belts and suspenders here. And now maybe I'm too much an 80-20 guy and I'm not like, you know, don't want to get to 99% right. But I was like, well, why don't we take out these like five things that in my, from my, you know, limited perspective as a junior associate seem to provide very little value to the deal, but do take like 30% of the effort and it drives the lawyers, you know, crazy. The clients don't even know what's happening, nor do they care. And we have bigger protections that manage against that risk. And, you know, understandably, I was a young lawyer when I voiced this thought, the more senior lawyers kind of like patted me on the head and said, like, that'll do like, just do the deal the way the deal's done. We don't need a third year changing deal structures for public company deals. So I realized, you know, training lawyers was only, only perceived valuable if it didn't get away, didn't get in the way of my deal work. Coming up with new structures wasn't really needed, but these were the two things I was most interested in. So that was actually the time for me when I was like, oh, okay, the things that I'm drawn to aren't the core of this job. And so does it make sense? And that was, that kind of led me actually to the, you know, my partner and I, we decided to resign and traveled around the world for six months. So that was like the jumping off point to it's got to be something else. And those are very important uh, pieces, Chad. The, the, I, I will get back to this. Uh, it's a certain area I want to probe a bit more and I know the audience will be interested in. But uh, to uh, growing up, who had the biggest influence um, on you? And, and I heard about this grandfather, very interesting uh, uh, piece that in terms of his personality, mm -hmm. but anyone else uh, sort of growing up that was influential? Yeah, I mean, my, my parents were very influential for different reasons. I mean, my, my father was a professional services person, extremely, you know, like, I don't know if he would say passionate about his work, but he liked it, but he's very committed. Like he's a very dedicated person. And when he feels it, he goes straight into it. And so like, I kind of got that, okay, this is how professional services people operate from him. But then for my mom, I kind of got the a bit more subtle, but more like the glue element of like, this is how we keep things together. This is how we like make space for everyone. And so that was like what I took from each of them. And then like I was saying about my grandfather, kind of, even though I only saw him a couple of times a year, cause we lived in different cities. The big thing that I took away from him was he lived his life in the way that he was meant to. Like he used his gifts. He didn't have a lot of education, but he used his gifts of like community building, his energy, his enthusiasm to bring people together. And I found that he really gave to people first without expecting the return to immediately come. And I, what I noticed, because obviously he was much older when I really knew him, was the environment he created for himself by operating that way, that looked really beautiful to me. This looks like, you know, when I'm a kid looking at that saying, that's how I want to be when I'm older. People always wanted to come over, be around me, support me, have a lot of stories. And so those were kind of three really big influences on my life for, for different reasons. And uh, I, I think the certainly believe it, uh, Chad, because I had a grandfather who was very similar in, in personality. And uh, it, you know, there, there's a book by Adam Grant, I think you and I have talked about in the past called Give and Take and, and how he describes strategic givers. So that so the people mm -hmm. that are approached with uh, an era, sort of an approach of generosity and, and giving first and, and uh, that the world is far better when we approach it that way. For sure. The no expectation of return is a big one. And I think this is where people get caught because we, we expect that if we do this, someone will do this. And it makes it very difficult because the entire time you're, you're in theory giving, you're actually thinking about the reciprocity of what you're going to get back and if it's worth the effort. And so it makes the giving harder and it puts a lot of tension around the relationship for what you're supposed to get back and if it's going to measure up. And so I find that very difficult. And often lots of people, they don't know what you wanted to receive back or that they were meant to or why you were doing it for them. And so the alignment is really tricky in that game. And even if you get it right, it's very transactional. But if you do things that don't feel that hard for you to do, like they feel naturally in you, like you're a community builder, you love making introductions. I'm like that in my own way too. And so it doesn't feel like heavy work for me to do that. 
And I find that's actually where you can tap into a lot of value because if you do things that are very natural for you, you're not thinking, oh, this is a grind. And I'm not thinking, oh, is Gary going to do something back for me? Because I'm like, I do this anyway. I like doing this. It's good value for me. And so when I think about Adam Grant's book and my experience with that is I find the nice spaces. What would I do normally? Because then my I can naturally reduce my expectation of return because it doesn't feel like a grind. Absolutely. Uh, so, Chad, certainly these are the types of things that uh, could apply no matter what industry people are from. And I know you spent a lot of the time in the legal industry naturally. But when you were growing up, what did you want to be? Because very few people think at an early stage, I want to be a lawyer. Maybe you did, but it's... Uh, uh, and certainly now being a coach and, and a business advisor and, and many other things at the same time. But it's I wonder how that evolved from when you were a child. Yeah, I did not. I, like, I, mean, I, I said I'd like to show Matlock and I naturally actually loved that show. And I think because I enjoy talking to people, I enjoy thinking through solutions and I like Matlock, I was told that I should go to law school. I didn't think that was a bad answer, but like, I didn't even know I was supposed to think about it for myself. And so I didn't really think about any of it. I realized very early. I like the show. People are seeing that show, seeing me saying I should go to law school. They're parental or authority figures to me. So they must be right. So I guess I'm just doing that. And so my entire kind of future facing forward was really like, okay, well, I will achieve that goal at some point. That seems to be a good thing to do. But the only thing I was actually really noticed about myself growing up is I'm very relational. All I care about is the connectivity between people and helping people find the most that's within themselves. That's what I always cared about. Whether I was a kid at sports camp, I was a good athlete, but I would help the other kids at sports camp get better at whatever sport we were learning because I was more drawn to it. Like even as a college athlete, I'm not a competitive person. I actually don't get the value out of winning. What I get the value of is helping my teammates play the best that they can and helping our team play in the most efficient way possible. Just so happens that that helps you win. And so I think for a long time, people looked at me as like, oh, he's a good athlete. The guy, you know, wants to go to law school. He must be a very type A competitive person that way. I'm not really. I'm very relational. That was the only thing I ever knew about myself. Yeah. Well, and Chad, you could be highly motivated and uh, you... And I, I think you are type A, but there's di different. There's type A's with a high EQ uh, that may may be different than uh, certain type A's that may not be as uh, high on the EQ level. And and I think when we think more broadly, th that's a consideration because there isn't a lack of ambition with you. And I think it's, but it isn't always about winning at an individual level. Which sure. when you're thinking of an organizational structure, it's far more important than. If I do really so well I, as an individual, how good is that when you're trying to build an infrastructure? This is the part that. I always noticed, but never seemed to land that well, is that we talk about, you know, before we started this recording, we were talking about the definitions of words. People say words and we exchange them as if we both mean the same thing, but we don't. So we talk a lot about type A or competitive and immediately, especially in professional services, we go to equals good, equals better. And then we talk about other things about like, relational or community building or soft skills. And we go, that sounds like a nice add on, but you must have the other things first. I'm here to tell you, like I could have been a partner at that law firm. I was a general counsel of an international portfolio of technology companies. I could still be doing that if I wanted to, like you can achieve all of those things if you want to, without feeling like, Oh, I'm in this box of type a, I'm a competitive person. And to your point, the reason, yeah, I was smart enough, whatever, but I wasn't a genius the thing that allowed me to succeed so well and work with businesses and work with clients is I want to understand them from their perspective. And that matters much more when you're working in an organization than almost anything else. If you have that curiosity and humility, you can solve almost any problem because you maximize the knowledge and intelligence sharing. Absolutely. When Chad, you and I did a, 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 a with a few other colleagues of ours, uh, we did uh, essential or peers rather, but we did a, a webinar last year on business development for lawyers. And one of the things that was extremely important was that there are a lot of good lawyers out there. There are a lot of good lawyers with a technical knowledge, but their relatability to clients, understanding their circumstances, asking them about it and bringing it all, all together is far more valuable than strictly knowing the law well, uh, sure. because understanding their circumstances 
brings the two together is understanding the law with their situation, which ultimately makes you a far better advisor. For sure. And the right answer, like the 100% right answer, the 95, it almost doesn't matter most of the time. Like if you're in the 87%, which most people can get to that are in this profession, the vast majority of the time, not only is that right enough, that is actually all the client or the business needs or wants from you. Because you can get to 87% quickly and that'll probably meet the risk profile that any organization is willing to take. And by the way, for law firm lawyers, organizations take on a massive amount of risk unless they're extremely mature and heavily regulated, taking a risk all the time. So they don't mind that risk if you can explain it and rationalize it. And so it actually doesn't matter about being a genius for 95% of the work that you do. What matters a lot more is being actually curious, not pretend curious about what people are wanting to do, because what they say to you versus what they mean are different things. You could not do any work and that be better than running away and doing a whole bunch of work. So you have to be curious. You have to have humility to understand what is this client about? Where's their company at on the journey? Where's that individual at on the journey? What can I learn from them to apply, you know, my knowledge of the law? And then when you bring that out from them, they want to tell you more. And that's how you come up with a solution that that organization that the human actually stands behind and believes as a GC, I can tell you, this is very rare that you receive this from your advisors and any advisor that really does this with their like full heart and mind immediately to the top. And almost any GC is going to tell you the exact same thing. So being this super competitive genius, much less valuable for most clients than being someone who's actually curious and, and brings humility to their work. And Chad, it's a, uh, I, I know I always get excited when we chat because then, but then we run in, in a variety of different directions. And I, this is something I really want to get back to, but uh, to, to bring it a bit more centrally, the shift that you just went through in your career at about, if I recall correctly, it was around this time last year or probably not long before that. Mm -hmm. it's, has it been a year already? Yeah. The, the, so talk, tell me sort of the impetus behind it. I know we, we touched on it, but it's, what led to it and, and ultimately the sort of what you see that meaning for your future? Yeah. So, you know, after I left law firm life, traveled for a bit, that was a personal and professional reflection about how other people value their time and energy, right? Because Toronto, Canada, the world, we need to understand how people think and act in order to understand how to work with them. So did that journey, came back, went into industry and the reason why I wanted to go in house was because I realized I was a curious cat and I wanted to like learn different areas of law, learn how to work with different folks, different functions. And so did that still realized, okay, this is three years of learning how to be an in-house lawyer like that, like the people still not obsessed about being a lawyer. How can I get closer to feeling like I'm leading a function, not being a lawyer. And so that's when I went over to this portfolio of tech companies, built a legal function, took on the GC role there on the senior leadership team, built a team, brought in um, technology, including, you know, your wonderful translation technology to really make a modern and progressive legal function that uses tech tools to scale and automate. And I loved that part. But after three and a half years of buying companies, integrating them, putting in the legal tech, I kind of felt like, okay, well, I've achieved that mountain. What next? And I came to the same feeling that I have when I, when I was leaving law, kind of seven, big law seven years before, which is I don't think there's more in this part of the ecosystem that I'm really going to take value from. Okay, so then what do you really want to do, man? And so I did this reflection for myself. And, you know, I'd been doing like coaching and personal therapy for about a decade at that point to really get to know myself. And I came back to these same two things. I care about helping people find the most in themselves and I care about making their way forward easier. And so I started sharing these ideas on LinkedIn for about, you know, maybe a year or a little bit less before I left my GC role. And what I found is it was the first time in my life people said, wow, you're creative, you're passionate. This is refreshing. I've never heard this. And I, all my life I had heard you're smart enough, you're nice enough, you work hard enough. These are very different reflections. And I said to myself, like, there is something here. You clearly have a passion for like helping people and making their way forward easier. What is it? And so I resigned. Um, I started like doing presentations and doing the speaking circuit on this for the last like, you know, year and a half. But it was it was about a year ago when I said to myself, you're not going to be a GC going forward in this phase. You just know that. And so we don't know exactly what it's going to be, but it's got to be centered around these two things. And so I resigned in September 2022, took three months just to 
open myself up to the world of possibilities. Do I partner with somebody? Do I work in an org bringing my LinkedIn brand to their brand? Or do I do my own thing? And what I realized over the holiday season, um, 2022 was it's the right time to do exactly what you want to offer in the way you want to offer it. And so kind of formally in January, I launched my own consulting and coaching business to help lawyers and professionals on an individual level find the place in their career that makes the most sense for their natural gifts and what they care about. And on the B2B side with legal teams and law firms doing the same, but on a bit more of a scaled version for, for their team members. And I got to tell you, Gary, it is like the first time in my life that every single moment of every day, it feels like this is 1000% the right thing I'm meant to be doing. I'm, it's not just I'm good enough to do it. I've been trained enough to do it. This is exactly what I'm meant to do. And that's so important, Chad, right? Like the, the, it's an everlasting quest in most people's lives and careers to say, let's find that, you know, where this is where exactly where I'm supposed to be spending my time on. And doesn't mean every moment of it is, is going to be fun and, 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 and fireworks. It's just there, the, naturally it's, it's about getting the satisfaction of, of everything you do. So that, that's right. And when I say I love every, like, I love the essence of every minute of it. It's what I'm meant to do. Yeah. Like it's not, everything is perfect, but it's not meant to be. And I'm not looking for perfection. What I'm looking is what you said, which is like, how do I create and capture the greatest impact and value that I can in this unpredictable amount of time I've got on this earth? And yeah, sometimes it's like sending out invoices for work I'm doing. Okay. That's not the same thing as doing the work or talking to you, but it still matters to me. Because it's in service of a goal that's deeply meaningful to me. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's so important, Chad, because it's it, sometimes, uh, you know, you talk to people that are starting out and they're like, oh, and I have to spend this time doing invoicing, etc. It's like, look, every entrepreneur that ever started had to do it. Of course. It. So don't, you know, obviously the, there is a certain level, there are certain things we have to do that come with the profession. But it's if it's moving the bigger picture along, believe it, this is what you're supposed to be doing. Definitely. Uh, and you know, to your point, we started the, the podcast chatting about definitions and it's the old adage, common sense, not so common. So that's why sometimes I like to elaborate a bit more around some of these concepts, because it's there's a lot of people that will be listening to this podcast thinking, um, I'm, here's what I'm thinking about my future. Here's what I'd like to do. Maybe I should talk to Chad and, and pick his brain because he's he's certainly done it, especially lawyers. And I mean, lawyers do great in, in uh, a variety of areas that they go into outside of law. Um, whether it's sometimes could just be going from private practice to in-house, sometimes could be doing something on the business front or something extremely creative. Uh, and the, but the reality is that a lot of their training can come in very handy. And what they often miss is here's the motivation to know that I can do well in something else. And it, the, you know, although law can be lucrative financially, et cetera, I could also do finan well financially somewhere else Definitely. without that pressure. Of, I can only, I have to draft or I have to litigate or whatever area of practice it may have been. It's You're so right. And so I think where we get caught, we get caught on the outcome. Like I need to be title or role. And what I try to tell people all the time is that like, that's actually an extremely limiting point of view, right? Like you're, you're, creating your, your funnel to being one thing that you're choosing, not for your own reasons, but because of like what you think the external benefits are, it may end up being the right thing, but let's, let's let it reveal itself. And I think the way that you do that is like, you got to know who you are in there. What are the gifts that you've got that are so natural to you? Like, you know, Gary, clearly you love connecting with people and learning about people. This is not hard for you. This is actually very hard for many people. You're a connector of people. Your mind very quickly says, these people should know these people for this reason. That is a massive gift for a lot of folks. And, you know, and I know that you're aware of this, but like for a lot of folks, they have no idea that these things that they're great at are really special because they're so easy for them. And so they don't value them. And instead they value all of these things that are extremely hard for them because they've been told, well, hard things equals good. But if you actually use the gifts that are, you know, most naturally in you, you're already amazing at them. They bring you good energy. So they're easier to do. And you can actually create way more value with way less effort. So if you apply those natural gifts towards goals you care about, like for you, clearly you're an entrepreneurial kind of guy. You have been your whole life. It really is inspiring to you to like build something and make something bigger. 
Okay, great. So you're applying your community, your energy, your connectivity, your entrepreneurial, you know, energy towards those goals. That's why you've been so massively successful and something you clearly love to do, not just something you've been trained to do. So if we go inputs first, the outputs, you know, become such a nice right fit and they become so intuitive instead of being like, I got to be a GC or I got to be a partner. Why? Maybe, but why? You got to know why first. Starting with why, mm-hmm. uh, right, Chad? Yeah, well, I guess Simon Sinek <laughs> took that one first. But, you know, I would at least say, like, <laughs> figure, figure out what matters so to you. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I think you're right. I think, like, it's find out what matters to you. It is, like, your why. But it's, like, it's not – so you got, like, the purpose – Plus your abilities, like what natural abilities can you apply towards your purpose? That just makes it so much faster and easier and more enjoyable to be successful. And Chad, you you did a TEDx uh, around unlocking happiness. Uh, tell me a bit more about it and uh, the you know what was sort of key takeaways and you know what excited you about it as well because that's that's of interest to me. The you know because. Obviously, you do some of these things um, because there is a benefit to a larger audience, but also there's a level of satisfaction that comes personally as well. For sure. like, And that's a great example of how it came out and why I did it. So I did this TEDx at the University of California about a month ago. But the reason how it came up, I always thought to myself, I like public speaking. Doing a TEDx would be cool. I never even thought to figure out, like, how do you get one? I just figured the TED gods came out of the ether and just were like, hey, Chad, hey, Gary, hey, Sarah, like, do you want to talk about this? Like, I never even thought to figure it out. And what happened was through my LinkedIn journey, like, when I, here's something that I think is really valuable. When you see something that you think is positive and moving something forward, number one, tell people and tell them in the words you actually thought in your brain. Not just like corporate jargon, but like for me, when I see something that I think is amazing, I'm like, that's incredible. You know, it's really beautiful the way you like line that up. And the reason why I say that is because not only does it feel good personally to say it, but two, it lets people know that you deeply care in a real way. And so I just started doing that. And what I found is it built this really nice community. And I started, I saw two people in my community that I didn't know that well, one in San Francisco, one in Australia, they were doing something together. And I just saw it. And in my mind, I was like, that's cool. That makes a lot of sense that these two would work together because I've seen what they both write about. Makes sense to me. And so I just wrote that thing. I was like, wow, this is cool. And the person who I knew a little bit less in San Francisco said like, oh, thanks so much, blah, blah, blah. Like I've been meaning actually to contact you. We should get together like in a comment thread. And I didn't just say like, yeah, that'd be great. I wrote to him like thousand percent. I'm sending you a message now. And I actually did. And I said like, here's like my calendar link, like let's book something. I want to get it on the books. I didn't know what was going to come of it. I just felt like that naturally felt like the right thing to do. We had a conversation. She is a former employment lawyer. She now has her own like DEI consulting firm. She does a lot of speaking. She had done two TEDx's. I knew that again, it wasn't the point. And we were just talking about our businesses. I was learning from her. And then right after we hung up the phone, she pings me the application to University of California's TEDx. And I looked at it. And I realized, oh, it's like an application process and they have themes. And I said to myself, like, okay, the theme, the theme is debunking some classic life rule. And I had just done a LinkedIn post on do hard things and why I think that that's like can be taken a bit too narrowly and, and actually like hurts our career trajectory. And so I was like, okay, I've got a, I've got a topic that fits a theme. I can do that because of you inviting me to that panel that you talked about a year ago that turned into various other speaking engagements. So I had a cool video clip from one of these other speaking engagements I had done. I needed that. That is how the TEDx came together. It was because building community, being selfless first, helping others, lifting others, they then help you. And so I wanted to share that because like good things come that way when you share first. And so, you know, that's how it came about. And I did the TEDx on basically figuring out your hard thing figuring out what your natural gifts are, figuring out goals that are meaningful to you and not just doing any hard thing, but doing your hard thing. And so that's what I did the TEDx on. And it was an incredible experience. Oh, and, and Chad, the, I think this is, uh, it's the power of the ecosystem. And it's one of those things uh, you have done uh, an incredible job building. And, and I will tell you, because I, 
follow and and always uh, react uh, with uh, like and support <laughs> and uh, find insightful the various LinkedIn posts that you have. And, and then here's the power of them is, you know, the social media, especially during COVID became even more critical because we couldn't see each other in person. We couldn't do events in person. So it was like, okay, well, let's at least interact with each other virtually, which in return meant, okay, if we're going to interact with each other virtually, then let's make sure we're also adding some value to, to one another. And we can't always speak. Uh, every time I, you and I chat, chat, I, I learn something, I get inspired, but ultimately there's only so many times we can get together in person. The occasional drip, you know, posts that where it shares some insights and there's a community of uh, lawyers or, or just uh, executives or, or uh, people at various levels in, in the business infrastructure that I follow out there that are actually amazing at the insights and that have taken that leap forward to say, hey, let's share with the, the people out there because these learnings, these journeys we often go through, we're not alone. And until you see some of that validation from people in the marketplace and or in the in the the LinkedIn ecosystem or otherwise validate some of that, then you feel like, okay, this is this does happen more often. This uh, issues that you may be dealing with at a time or beliefs or, or itches about doing something else are far more prevalent than we sometimes think. It's really connecting, right? When that happens. Uh, sorry, I went uh, on a bit of a. a I, I, I went on a bit of an elaborate uh, <laughs> preamble to, to my next question to you, which is, you know, you love finding that greatness in others. And what is the, the first step you suggest others to find their own hard think? Like it's, uh, it's how do they focus on if they are actually finding uh, the, sort of what they should focus on? Um, how, how do you suggest they do it? And, and how, what's the best way to go about it? I think, you know, there's kind of two fun act, fun activities that you could do. You know, the first is ask three people from different elements of your life that have known you for a while. So like a family member, a friend, a coworker, or a former coworker, and ask them, what do you think are my most greatest natural traits or skills? Like things that you don't think I need to be incentivized or threatened to do. I just do them all the time. And you see me do them all the time. What do you think those things are? And I find some people actually struggle with the question in the beginning because they're like, well, what does it mean? We're used to thinking about stuff we've been trained to do. But I mean, like, are you selfless? Are you thoughtful? Are you a connector? Are you humorous? Are you creative? Like, what is it that you're doing that you don't have to do? You're not required to do it, but you just do it all the time. And what I find all the time is, the words that people get back from these three different sources can sound a little bit different, but underneath it are these themes that are all kind of the same thing. And what that does for us is it allows us to see that almost all the time throughout our life, we've been doing these two, three, four things. And the magic of that is realizing you're probably pretty great at that because you do it without being threatened to do it without needing incentives. So you do it a lot. When you do something a lot, you naturally become better at it. You've got the energy for it. You probably read books about it. You probably listen to podcasts about it. You probably talk to people about it, which further refines your knowledge and expertise in it. These are like uh, incredible assets to use in your career. So that's one that you could do. And then another thing that's pretty cool is, you know, maybe over a week, like keep a little pad or a, a phone note open that, tracks things that your brain moves to when you're not trying to think, when you're not being forced to think about logistics or work or whatever obligations you got, like, where's your mind go? Does it go to like, like my mind goes to human relationships and how humans are motivated and incentivized. So I'll be listening to like Jay Shetty's podcast or Adam Grant's podcast or, you know, Lori Santos's podcast because I'm so curious about it. And so my brain's always going there. Why does Gary think this? Why did, why is he trying to do that? Who's he? I love this stuff. And so what I realized from these two exercises that like my natural gifts are here. This is something I deeply care about. And I think if you have those two pieces, you're at the beginning of building a foundation that could be some part of your life, a big part of your life that you can drive towards that you'll care a lot about and you'll have the natural gifts to succeed in. And Chad, it's, those are so extremely powerful and uh, tips that really anyone could use, regardless of what area of, of life they come in. Sure. I want to build upon that with something a bit more specific, uh, because I've heard you talk about positive job crafting. 
And um, it's, it's something that professionals can leverage. Like how does someone approach this for themselves while ensuring buy-in from their organization? Like what are some tips you could uh, give to professionals to think that way? Yeah, so if you haven't heard of job crafting, like this is a concept that's been around for a while. University of Michigan made this very famous. And it's really about thinking like, okay, so if I'm someone who likes public speaking or I'm someone who likes being a connector or maybe I'm someone who's very like in the logistics detail oriented, how do I bring those gifts more into my job? And so you look at the job description that you have or kind of the role that you have, you look at what you do in a day and you start to say to yourself, like, here's an example. Okay, so if I present once a day at a standup on like what my piece of the function is doing, do I do that through a written document or do I do it mostly through an oral presentation with like some written pieces to support it? Well, you should probably base that on the skill that you have. And so you craft what you do around your natural gifts. And so that's one way. And the reason why I call it positive job crafting is if you do that without your manager's buy-in, then you could get some friction and that could lead to, you know, even more maybe resentment of your job or a bad relationship with your manager. And so I call it positive job crafting because you want to speak to your manager to say like, Hey, I want to bring more of my gifts into my role to help the company, to help my own career satisfaction. I'm thinking about doing a few of these things. What do you think about that? And that will usually lead to a much better result because you'll have alignment before you do something. So that's why I call it positive job crafting. And uh, that's really insightful, Chad, and, and uh, certainly something that can be done regardless of what professional people are in, but the uh, even more so important in, in corporate environments that can be very convoluted. Yes. Um, one qu more question for you around uh, the legal profession, just being so getting a bit more specific. It's often very stressful, high pressure. Um, what are some of the tactics you suggest for lawyers struggling with finding happiness? that they should employ sort of in short order. Yeah, so I mean, one thing that I did, and especially when I was um, in the law firm where, you know, depending on the, the firm and the type of work that you do, you can have a bit of an unpredictable life and probably a pretty heavy demand on your hours that can creep into evenings and weekends. And what I find, what I found in that time is if you're waiting for the free time to plan something or do something, you're just never going to do it. And so what I would start doing, you know, with a group of peers, even at the firm or my other friends is I would just pre-schedule things in my calendar. And I would probably do things like buy tickets to something that weren't exorbitantly priced, like a month or two out and just drop them all in my calendar. And because what that forces you to do is like, if there's ever a choice then you try to work around this commitment that you've already made. You've put it in the calendar. You've said to your peers, you want to do it. You've bought the ticket for it. And so it helps you if you do it ahead of time enough to bring in some elements of your life that aren't purely about the work. So that's kind of like a really like short hack that you can do that probably doesn't speak to like the core issue that you may be feeling, but it does give you some relief in your mind to know there are other things I'm going to do with my time and I'm going to do my best to make those things happen because I know they're in advance. I can communicate those to, if I can, to my manager and try to work around them. And so that's one thing that you could do for fairly low cost. You just have to buy the things in advance. Don't worry if you're obsessed with doing the activity, just buy the things. It forces you to do something different. Um, so that would be a big one. I think the other thing, if you're really feeling unhappy is you got to ask yourself why, like, don't just let the unhappiness tell you hate my job. It's often not the case. Like there can be many other reasons. One, it could just be like maybe the type of very nuanced work you might be doing at the time, the type of people that you're working with, the fact that you're using skills that aren't that natural to you, that you don't really have a lot of value in, or you wish you were bringing your other skills into it. And so if you ask why, and you keep asking why like three or four times drill down, you might get a better sense of the very specific definitions of the things you don't like. That allows you to start problem solving for the actual issue, not just this feeling of like resentment or annoyance, because if you only leave it at the top level, you don't have many options. Grind through it and feel that pain or jump ship. And there may be a lot of options in between. And Chad, that, that's extremely important because, uh, you, know, you know, we talked about definitions a lot throughout this podcast, but it is... Uh, sometimes people see unhappiness as this continuum and it, the reality is it's often uh, prompted by certain 
key factors. So whether it's to your point, using skills that uh, or doing tasks that that are not key to to the person's skill set or, or enjoyable. Um, and the asking the why in terms of diving into the very specific, and that goes well before, beyond the legal profession. Certainly within law, it could be as simple as if I'm within the firm, do I try working with other lawyers or do I try a different area of practice within the firm? And um, and even in-house, uh, sort of how you approach it with the business and more communication can be so critical to just getting a better relationship. 100% my friend. I mean, it's like phase one is you got to figure out what you're about, but phase two is you got to tell people. And that's what you're touching on there, which is like, you got to know what you're about for sure, what you want to do and the skills you've got. But then number two is you got to tell people. If you don't tell people, they don't know how to leverage your assets. And we think a lot of times that like, well, if someone's not asking me to do something, they must think I suck at it or they don't want it. Not true. They just don't know that you care about it maybe. And if you tell them that I really care about this, more often than not, people are going to want to take you up on it because they'll see your passion. They'll see your commitment. And when you see those two things in someone, you're pretty confident good things will happen. Well, and Chad, it's the discovery process, as you described, you know, asking people around you to to really find, tell you a bit about some of the strengths, et cetera, like becomes critical because sometimes we often don't see certain things in ourselves or we we try to overcompensate for areas where we're weaker in, et cetera. And the strength process I had done, um, I had done, uh, it was a, essentially a behavioral psychology test in terms of leadership. And I had to get five people that weren't family, it wasn't parents or it wasn't uh, essentially someone you were in a relationship with, immediate family to fill out. And then they actually plot you and you plot yourself based on some of the answers. Yeah. And it's interesting, you actually more often than not don't have exact overlap because a lot of the feedback you get externally is a bit more objective than when you try to think about yourself. It's totally true. Um, so it became really interesting to see the, the, the strengths and, and how to get there. You know what else is really interesting about that experience is like there's all these things that go on in your mind that you think about yourself. Actually saying it out loud or hearing it from somebody else, we think that's too simple to have an impact. What I find every time I work with someone who does that is they say a version of like, wow, to hear that from people. That was really impactful to have this conversation, to say it, it like locks it in at a different level. You can know something versus feel something. And once you actually feel it, it actually gives you all of this like energy and commitment to it versus just knowing it in your mind. And I know it feels too simple, but the best news is if you think it's too simple, then I offer you this, go try it. It's no cost. You can do it quickly. There is no barrier. And so for anyone out there who's like, ah, oh, it's too easy. It wouldn't do anything. Just go try it free, no cost. And where you, you're not going to be in a worse position. You're going to be in a better position. So give it a go. And then tell me whether you think like it helped you or not, because every single person that I've ever worked with on this is like, wow, I feel like I have more kind of fuel in the tank for these things or more awareness of my abilities, more confidence in them than I did before. Well, and Chad, you know, uh, one of the points that really sips through in what you're saying is often things, uh, some of the most critical things in our lives are not complicated. Like the, the answer is often very simple. And, and an example I'd like to give is the biggest study or one of the biggest studies ever done around success in entrepreneurs and executives. The one key factor that was across every single interview was that resilience and that persistence showing up every day and doing it uh, every day, which theoretically sounds simple. You're like, yeah, of course, like all, all these people to be successful, they had to show up and do their resilience. But yet when we actually think of what we have to do every day and showing up and there will be days that are uh, more disappointing than others, like you're, you're not everything is always going to go smoothly. But the key is that that persistence, that resilience is a simple answer. And yet often we see through them because we feel like there must be something more than it. And the reality is there, there's often smaller components that can help, but the, the answers tend to often be not terribly complicated. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think, you know, maybe we just need to ask ourselves like, well, why is it so simple? Because this this concept feels very difficult for many of us to like be very resilient in all elements of our life. And the reason is it's easier to be resilient when you have a purpose for doing something and you have a natural inclination to be able to do that thing well. It's just easier to be resilient. And so if you chose something that you didn't care about and was extremely hard for you, like for me, Gary, if you were like, hey, Chad, would you mind doing me a favor and writing like a 100 page white paper about like why translation services are like the best thing that AI's ever had? I'd be like, listen, Gary, I can do it, man. 
But like my resilience level to achieve a good product for you at any time in the next century is extremely low. But if you were like, hey, Chad, do you want to do this podcast with me for the next 48 hours straight? I'd be like, yeah, I could probably fight through that. I would love to talk to you for 48 hours. And everyone's going to have their own version. And so what that tells you is we are great at being resilient at different things. And if you make peace with that, what that allows you to do is put the bags down on the stuff that you don't need to be resilient at. Someone else will do that. You got to be resilient at the thing that matters to you with the gifts that you have. That's how a simple idea like resilience makes a lot more sense. A hundred percent. It's be resilient with your strengths. I love it. Uh, if I could distill that, right? Like the, the, it's just so important. Um, so Chad, we're moving to a, a, a section of our uh, podcast that is a little different than what we've done so far. And it's what we call the rapid fire question. So I, blurt out a question to you and just the first answer comes to mind, uh, uh, the, the typically one word. Um, so are we ready? Let's do it. Uh, what is your favorite word? Curious. What word do you hate? Universal. Universal, right? Yeah, like universal truth. I don't like it. Yeah. Um, what word do you have a hard time pronouncing? <laughs> if any. <laughs> of course. I think whether it's pronouncing or spelling is something like conscious versus conscientious. There's lots of C's and S's in there. Uh, some of the fun things about the English language. Uh, what is your favorite word in another language, if any? Bravo. How many languages do you speak? Oh, Gary, it's so disappointing. I, I barely speak English. You know, this is, this is the only thing I've got. I took French through college, but if you don't stay in the environment, you know, you just don't know. But I, I'm proud enough to say that I took French through undergrad and I did an oral examination conversation at the end and I, and I passed it well. So, but, but it's disappointing. So we're putting our daughter through French immersion because Gary, we've got to build the languages back up. Oh, I, I truly love it. Um, and what's one word to describe yourself? Passionate. I, I would agree, Chad, if, if I get a vote. <laughs> I would love to hear yours, Gary. Do, do, you, so, do, you, uh, do you do your own words? Like, I'm so curious, like you're the, you're the language master. I know you speak lots of languages, but like, I'm so curious, like, what is the word, what is the word that you would ascribe to yourself? You know, it's funny because uh, I went through this, uh, Chad, um, I, I did a version of this with Mark uh, so that I could practice what I preached where I was in the interview seat. And uh, the, uh, the the interesting thing is uh, the when you say what's one word to describe yourself, the uh, I, I, I actually don't remember what I said when I went through the interview because it was now last year because before we started doing these, probably like October or November. Uh, but what comes to mind uh, right now, it's it's uh, very much uh, entrepreneurial or determined. I think that's, uh, but passionate, like all of these tend to play with one another, right? So like it's, and, and uh, it's also when passionate is not the first time it comes up in this podcast, because often some of the people that we interview are, are tend to be there. Yeah, I, I see that in you. I see that like entrepreneurial determination. Um for sure. And I think that comes out in so many ways in you, right? Like you're a creative guy, you're an innovative guy, you're a risk-taking guy, you're a community building guy. Like, you know, this is why, you know, you've built what you've built. So I could see that. So Chad, the formal part of the podcast is completed, but I do want to ask you three questions um, in where the answer could be terribly lengthy, but I'd like you to keep the answer at one minute or less to the extent we can. Let's do it. Okay. Uh, what is the single most important trend you see in the legal industry? And what do people need to do to successfully adapt? Technology, but I don't even mean that it has to be like chat GPT level technology, like technology at its most basic form 
is the way that we make progress, especially coming from an industry that is, you know, definitely behind others in terms of technology adoption. So here's what I mean. And this is what I did. When I became GC of that technology company, I focused building templates and information into basic tools like the G Suite or the MS Suite. Start at the basic thing, use shared tools, right? Put stuff in spaces where other people can populate their own documents. You can have specific fields where they can populate, like use that level of basic technology. Because once you get familiar with it, it takes the fear barrier down and then you can move into other pieces. Like we brought in, you know, Alexa translations, unbelievable tool. We brought in automated contracting, uh, unbelievable tool. But I think start at something that's not that far away from your ability today. You're already using Microsoft Word. So use the MS suite for shared documents. That's what I would say. Yeah, and really powerful. Uh, I really appreciate that, Chad. Some of these we're, we're going to share as tidbits with social media, which is why I'm, I'm putting that structure around keeping the answers brief versus yeah, of the, course. More, the, the previous part of the podcast. Um, and uh, the next one, uh, probably distilling some of what we said earlier, what is the most important piece of advice you can impart on aspiring lawyers or junior counsel? I would say reflect on your gifts and reflect on why you're doing what you're doing. And some people get me confused here where they think like, Oh, Chad, you're telling everyone else they got to take a trip around the world for six months and then follow their bliss. No, I'm saying, know your why. And your why could be financial security. Like I'm, there's a million whys you got to know yours just like gifts. I'm not saying being outspoken and a public speaker is better. I think you got to know what you're about because if you know those two things, whether you stay in that vertical or do something else, you're going to do it really intentionally using your greatest assets. And so look inward, figure that out. It is the foundation of everything you can build upon. Otherwise, all you can do is chase other people's dreams. Build your own. Build your own dream. Uh, it's extremely powerful. And Chad, the... Uh, there, there, I will leave it there because I know we're, we're almost out of time. But, you know, I knew with you, this was going to be just part of a continuous process that we would actually uh, have to do another session and uh, have, have some more fun in, in short order. Anytime, Gary.